Bonus pot. Bonus pot. Bonus pot. Bonus pot. Bonus pot. Bonus pot. Okay, animal. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know what happened to me, but bonus time. Bill and I just got back from uh, seeing Wes Anderson's latest Asteroid City in oh, theaters. We sure did. Had we it. have thoughts and feelings and opinions. It's a bonus pod. <laughs> I'm not gonna edit this. This is this is going this is going in raw. Going raw. Just going just live. Raw dogging it. Just raw dogging that pod. God. <laughs> so, Asteroid City, Wes Anderson, release date sometime last week, 16. Uh, sure, Cody. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna give you my spoiler-free thoughts on the movie. Please, please give spoiler-free thoughts on the movie. Wes. <laughs> I was just about to start yelling Wes Anderson is a fucking genius, <laughs> but that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, his use of the form of filmmaking um, to tell more story than through traditional filmmaking. His style is purposeful. His use of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The framing device? The framing device. His use of framing devices in his movies, and he's been doing this for fucking ever, is fucking great, and it makes me happy on the inside, and it makes me just enjoy watching his movies a little bit more than if he had taken himself more seriously. Um, so it's a very good movie. It is a Wes Anderson movie. It's got a massive cast. It's got good jokes, good bits. Uh, it's enjoyable we to watch. cackling throughout. Cackling. I got a little too high, maybe, so one part made me, like, Weep. really uneasy. <laughs> Oh, there's the weeping, too. I cried once or twice. Um, great fucking movie. I like movies a lot. Cody, what are your thoughts? Uh, spoiler-free thoughts. I... This man loves himself a framing device. He has never heard of subtlety. Um, he loves creating characters that are just jokes that he then uses to rip your soul out unexpectedly. Um, he is a fascinating auteur. Um, it, this movie is really interesting because, like, my most re like most of my experience with Wes Anderson is French Dispatch. I haven't really seen a lot of his other work besides Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, so I was always just like, oh yeah, Wes Anderson, twee, whatever. No, he is. There is depth. Um, and I feel like he uses his style to sort of pare down all the extras. So it makes it easier for him to tell the stories he wants to tell. And I feel like all of his movies benefit from his his ruthless... Uh, Aggression. <laughs> his, his ability to just... He has a vision, and if it does not serve the vision, it does not go in. And not in a bad way. It's more like it's easier for him to see, okay, I like A and B. A fits, B doesn't, A. Perfect. So he has more time to focus on what's actually important. Cool. Uh, can we go into spoilers now? Spoilers! I want to talk about spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie yet, either turn off the podcast and see it, or keep listening, I don't care, but be warned, we'll probably spoil some things. Spoilers after about the 335 mark. Here's here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. I don't know how... I'm we're not going to do a plot breakdown. No. Um, you, you might not even get spoiled if we're just going back and forth. So it's probably going to be better if you've seen the movie before. Anyway. Yeah. It's so hard for me to do anything spoiler-free with Wes because I just want to give examples. Yeah. So um, using filmmaking to tell more of a story... 
He he set up a joke in the opening credits, delivered a punchline at the end of Act One, and I know it's the end of Act One because the framing device told me it's the end of Act One. <laughs> and then came back around and re-hit the punchline in Act Three. And of course I'm talking about in the opening credits, Jeff Goldblum as the alien. <laughs> Okay, and then an alien appears in full alien costume, and it's hilarious, because now you're just thinking Jeff Goldblum. Yes. And then later, so the framing device of this is you're watching a television program from what looks like the 60s about a play called Asteroid City, and the color portions of the movie that you see advertised are the play. I almost thought the framing device was similar to French Dispatch in that it is the... uh, It is... A third party telling the story of the story that you're watching. Like, I don't think this is actually a program. I think he, I think, um, oh my God. Brian Cranston? Yes. I think Brian Cranston just, it's like the Twilight Zone narrator. Yeah. I don't think that's actually part of the story, except when it's part of the story. Except when he shows up in Asteroid City and it's like, I'm not in this bit. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. Am I not in this bit? (laughs) And it's it's so funny because it's just after that moment where Scarlett Johansson's character Midge Cooper, Midge, Midge some, yeah, Cooper, yeah. I think. Uh, I want to say Midge Person. That's something different. <laughs> um, Midge Cooper is talking about the artifice of having a black eye that she's painted on herself, and it's played for a joke. But then it cuts over, and you're showing the artifice of having a character that's not in this portion of the play. It's fascinating. It's, oh my god. Um, just little details he does like blink if you miss them or blink and you miss them just little bits when she's explaining the uh solar ellipses i'm talking uh, total swinton's character yes and she talks about how you have to use the box or you won't be able to see anything but the three stars will be burned into your retinas for probably forever i know because it happened to me the whole time she's saying this, the camera is facing her. She's dead in frame. Yes. And then immediately after she says that, it switches to her POV. And there are three spotlights evenly placed across the frame directly into camera. And they've been there the whole time. They are how the set is lit. And it's still part of the joke. It's so it's so tight and clever like that. Also, when you get the alien's POV, for the way that the eyes are set up, mm. that's the same way you get her POV when you see the dots in her eyes at the end of the movie. Yes. And it's the exact same circle. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, the fucking alien. The alien, uh, when Jeff Goldblum descends from his... (laughs) His spaceship. (laughs) Also, so, I'm gonna digress. Mm -hmm. Uh, Setting up the movie we're watching as a play to build cheap, bright, colorful sets is brilliant because if you didn't set that up you wouldn't get away with it but he's making his movie cheaper he's also able to tell more story in the elements of the fake ass sets because yes. he can emphasize certain things and we we give him a pass because it's a play that we're watching we're not watching a movie yes like he's playing ooh. on expectations of the audience both of by using the framing device and by um know it by demonstrating to you that this is a movie because when you go into a movie you expect certain things to happen and when you go to a play you expect certain things to happen so he is managing to break the convention while also setting up the expectation that these conventions exist in the first place Mm -hmm. it's the man 
has a mind for this thing. Do you think he's seen the play Noises Off? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, specifically that scene in Act 3 where um, the actor who plays Augie uh, just leaves the scene that we're watching in a yes. movie and t- t- just fades into the black and white universe of this movie and goes and talks to the director about how he doesn't get his part anymore. Yes. That is very inspired by Noises Off. It's also really interesting because they keep playing, again, playing with the expectations with your framing device. Um, we talked about this on the way home, but you have the um, the actors doing their thing, but they're referencing things that we don't see as the audience. Like, um, in the end, when he walks off, they're like, you missed your key. Excuse me. You missed your cue. The uh, teacher and the cowboy are already necking in the car. And it's like, yeah, that paid off. <laughs> that storyline has been building for this whole movie paid off, even though we didn't get to see it. Um, and there's a the, the moment where I think both you and I were like blown back in our seats was the scene where Margot Robbie shows up. Oh, my God. This fucking scene. It is across an alley. And they're both smoking. Full costume for very different plays. And you find out that Margot Robbie was actually supposed to play the dead wife of... For one scene. She was going to appear in one scene. And they cut it for runtime. Uh, and, and they she reads, like, she repeats the scene that they were supposed to have together to him. Mm-hmm. But and she does every line of it where... And then you say this. And then I say that. And she's not acting it. But the character of the actor is going through what his character is going through at the same time and needs to hear this. Yes. There's so many layers to it. So, like, the, the main... if It's a hard movie to say what's it about. Because it's on about the surface... Infinity. On the surface... And I'm not sure what else. <laughs> on the surface, it's about, okay, this town gets hit by a, an alien invasion and the government puts them in quarantine. But really, it's about the actors playing those parts. And how, when you're playing a role, um, and this is like the meat of what we talked about on the way home, was grief. And the- All media is about grief. That is my personal theory. Every piece of media that has ever been created is about grief. You're not wrong. Um, but the character of Augie Steenbeck mm-hmm. just lost his wife. Yes. Um, he's played by, that's Luke Wilson, right? Uh, no. no, that's... Uh, no, Jason Schwartzman. Yes. God, I get them confused. Um, he's played by Jason Schwartzman, and he plays everything fairly deadpan. Yes. Um, there's still, like, an emotionality in there. There's some darkness in there, but it's still, like, on the surface, super deadpan. And that's because the actor, also played by... Jason Schwartzman. <laughs> Jason Schwartzman, just lost his partner, who is the writer of this play. Yeah. So there's a scene early on where he essentially auditions for this part and mentions a scene in which the character puts his hand on a stove and he says, I do it because I needed an excuse for why my heart was beating that fast in that moment. Yeah. And when we come back to him after six months playing the role, when he's having that scene with Margot Robbie, after he lost his partner... He no longer understands why his character does that because now he's in that same situation. He's feeling that same grief for the first time in the actor's life and now understands that it wasn't true. If you're already feeling pain, why are you giving yourself more pain? It doesn't make sense to him anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I wonder if that's the whole you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep thing. I wonder if it's tied into that. Because I'm still trying to figure out where that fits in. I also, I, I think it has to do with the unreality that we're supposed to experience as both the audience. Because the, the he tells you, the narrator of the story tells you, you are supposed to feel unmoored and not necessarily uncomfortable, but there's a sense of unreality in the entire third act of the movie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the literal third act of the play and, and it, the third act of the like, movie. And when the thing pops up, it says to be played without stop or without ceasing. Relentlessly. Relentlessly. And, and it is relentless. Also, I'm now just now connecting. You know that scene where um, Scarlett Johansson's character is in the bathtub pretending to have just committed suicide in the movie? Yes. Uh, so she, sorry, she her character has committed suicide in the movie that she's practicing for, and she's like somehow roped uh, Jason Schwartzman character into reading the lines with her. And he's reading the lines, and she's telling him the stage direction, and she says use your grief mm-hmm. and that's what's that's what leads into him walking out is because he can't do it like you think he doesn't f- like the actor playing Augie doesn't finish that scene he is actively compartmentalizing and what she says use your grief because it is kind of shock to. it is shocking when he breaks the light bulb yeah because it's it's not something you expect because you understand that all of this is props like and my first thought was like oh they have to replace that light bulb every night but now that you're, you mentioned it, yeah, maybe the actor walked out because he was actually feeling an emotion. And that's the thing is that he is very limited intentionally. You can see the limits that the actor is putting on the character. Um, and so when he does break the light bulb, you have that moment of, oh, he's actually losing control. Mm-hmm. And it, the the way that the language is set up, because you don't know what's happening um, in terms of the actor experiencing grief until you're told in the next cutaway segment that he died, that the playwright has died yeah, the in a car had accident. Just died. Yes. Like tragic and yeah. Oh my god, it, the layers of it. And, I, and you just reminded me of um, uh, what's her name, Scarlett Johansson's character, mm-hmm. the actress was with the director and almost left the production. Yes. And she's playing an actress <laughs> who is practicing for a different movie role. So there's four layers of work being done there. And it's like, I love the intentionality of that. And it's something that Wes Anderson has always done is remind the audience that they're being told a story. And it, it allows us as the audience to forgive so much, as I've talked about, yeah. and it just allows the storyteller to just cleanly tell a story. You don't ask questions because you're just being told a story and you know that. I also feel like the the protagonists, quote-unquote, <laughs> every... All of the people that we spend time in the ba- in the lives of as the actors, because you've got the, the actor playing Augie, you've got the playwright who is Ro- Sam Rockwell, is that his name? I can't remember is, his name. That was Edward Norton? Was that Norton? Edward Norton. That is it Norton or is it Rockwell? It's, Nor- it's Norton. Okay. I thought it was Rockwell. I'm, um, I'm Googling. We keep going. Cool. Um, and the, not Cranston, the other one. Um, Willem Dafoe? No. No. Um, Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody, yes. The director. Uh, the director. Yes. The director has just lost his wife. And I don't mean she died. I she, mean, she leaves him. She leaves He's him. He's living backstage during the production. Yes. Uh, there's also a very funny... Uh, um, it, it is Edward Norton. It is Edward Norton. Okay. Um, there's a very funny moment where he's shadowboxing and there is literally a... 
Oh, there's like literally the speed bag next to him. Yes. And he's just doing like the mouth. There's just blah 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 blah. <laughs> which like, like the black and white sections were supposed to be deemed our reality, and even then, yes. it's still it's still another layer of fiction and that that's, we're being told. That's such a brilliant demonstration of that character too, because he has the real thing right there. And he's choosing to make something up instead. He can't see reality for the falsities that he's creating. And that's why his wife is leaving him. Yep. That's why he is so, uh, just such like a weird presence when you have him around. Like he, when you have the scene with um, Scarlett Johansson's character, the actor, Scarlett Johansson. Hold on a second. Something just clicked. Sorry. Yes. Um, It's supposed to be... uh, Oh my god! Oh fuck! It just left me. Um, Adrian Brody's character. Yes. At the very beginning, yes. they say that like the Brian Cranston character is very specific about how this is a work of fiction and it's definitely not real. Yeah. Have you noticed that the uh, Woodrow, the actor who plays Woodrow, has the same face shape as Adrian Brody? Yes. Do you think maybe that's Woodrow grown up? Maybe that would be interesting. Dealing with another layer, like he needs to make it real, like it becomes his reality because he lived this. Also, it's fascinating because I feel like Jason Schwartzman and the actor that plays Woodrow look so much alike. They look like perfect casting. They look like father and oh, son. Oh, yeah. Um, but the Adrian Brody, um, it, he's incredible. We just saw, we just started watching Poker Face and he's in the first episode of Poker Face. Why is this whole movie like in, takes place in that scene, the town from the second episode of Poker what? Face? What does it? It's <laughs> one gas station, one diner, <laughs> cop shooting out. Like that's all. <laughs> they take place in the same place. <laughs> um, and then you've got like the weird kids, the weird smart kids. I feel like there's also, this takes place in the 50s. Which would have been... The color section, the play takes place yes, in the 50s. that's what I meant. The play <laughs> takes place in the 50s, and the characters in the play, the Asian-American characters in the play, are the ones that are aggressively oh, being... I didn't catch that. It is the Asian kid who's, like, accused of treason. Yes. That feels very intentional <laughs> oh, on his part. it absolutely is. Oh, that's a good catch. Because oh, you also really have the catch. dad apologizing for the behavior, and the son's like, no! Don't apologize. The people deserve to know. Yeah. And you've got, of course, all this background, because this is a very specific and intentional uh, time frame, as Wes Anderson mm-hmm. always is. Yeah. It's so interesting, all of the little things that he puts in. Because you've also got, like, clearly you have the, the Liv Schreiber character, you've got the, the Cookie Scout mom, which that's another hilarious joke, is that they're not Girl Scouts in this, they're Cookie Scouts. Um, which I feel like is what, like, would be like a local euphemism for a Girl Scout troop. Mm-hmm. Yo, Cookie Scouts are in town. Let's get some Thin Mints. <laughs> and you've also got the the Asian dad. And these three, it felt like they have done this a bunch. They know each other. They've spent time together. This isn't their first rodeo hanging out with each other. But all of the kids, like, are just normal, weird, smart kids that don't really... They're thrown together by this, this summer camp. Mm-hmm atmosphere and they don't really know how to interact with each other but the adults do and that's what's it's it's such an interesting circle circle dynamic yeah what do you think about the vending machines oh my god (laughs) so you've got 
You start off with the regular ones. Like, you've got the cigarette vending machine. I swear they get... There's more of them every time you see there it. There are. Okay. Like, they, like, the first time you see it, it's like a <laughs> uh, cigarette machine and, like... Cigarette soda and, I think, milk and juice. Or, or like, not chips, but, like, something like a little snack yeah. or something. And then the next time you see it, there's a, a martini one. That, like, makes the martini for you. Like, it's got an orange on a wheel and it spins for the yeah. twist. And then the last and time... And every adult has a martini in hand, like, the rest of the fucking movie. Yes! <laughs> and then you've also got... The next time you see it, you've got the real estate vending machine. Which is... You don't actually own anything. You get a note because it starts out, oh, you get a notarized deed to this property. Yeah. And then when he's actually explaining it after Lee it, Schreiber. It becomes, a, it becomes a, like a loan. From it's the, a 50 year loan that gets forgiven after. Yeah. After the time frame. And uh, you think that's a, a critique on capitalism? <laughs> I just I love how Steve Carell's entire character in this movie is just weary manager of this motel um but it's just a character a um a customer service character so even he's playing a character yeah. upon a character and he's like n clearly not used to that many people being there all at once too yes like this is like the annual event for this town oh also woodrow's three sisters I feel like I could write a thesis on the little girls. Woodrow has three little sisters. They are all probably between the ages of like four to seven at oldest. And their names are Cassiopeia, Pandora, and Andromeda. <laughs> so first, yes, I think all of those are um, constellations. Second, um, they are, yeah. the little girls act as a Greek chorus because you always see them um they're never separate it's always the three of them together um and they also talk at the same time and kind of over and around each other the way that a greek chorus is meant to function um and they also when you first meet them and they introduce themselves to the uh they go into a diner um and they She's like what do you what do you princesses want to drink I'm not a princess. I'm a I'm a witch. I'm a fairy. I'm a I'm a mommy. <laughs> yes. And the next time you see them, they are all dressed as those characters, the things that they said. Like the one little girl's wearing fairy wings, one has like a cape cuz she said she I think she said she's a vampire. She said she's a vampire, yeah. And then they have the ashes of their mother in a Tupperware and they're trying to bring their mother back to life by <laughs> casting spells. You've got fucking Macbeth happening in the corner of this movie for no reason. There's, like, direct references to multiple Coen Brothers movies. Really? Like, the the desert setting plus the Roadrunner gags is almost certainly a reference to um, Raising Arizona. Oh, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was just a reference to, like, Looney Tunes. Well, Looney Tunes as well, but Raising Arizona was also referencing Looney Tunes, and he had, it wasn't Woody Woodpecker, it was a... He had a tattoo in Raising Arizona that was like a mascot for uh, oh, like an automotive parts yeah. chain or something. I'm not familiar with the character, but like a lot of people would consider it like Coyote and Roadrunner with him and the motorcycle guy in that movie. Oh yeah. So like, I looked at that and just saw fucking Cohen's Cohen's did the or one of them did the um, Macbeth yes. a couple years ago as well. Yeah. Um, like there weren't direct homages to other directors, but like he hit Spielberg's tone. Yeah. When the alien arrived, it felt like fucking E.T. Yeah. Um, I also feel like the ship itself looked like the E.T. ship. 
It looked like if you had to make a UFO out of a hubcap and a cookie tin. <laughs> like, it, it looked like a piece of set in a theater. It really did. Um, it, it was so... just. There were so many layers to every single decision that was made. Like, you were talking about the girls being a Greek chorus. Yes. Okay, that's how the characters are in the play. They are that role. But also, the whole, this is about making a movie kind of movie. They are played by a real set of sisters. And they're only in a handful of scenes and they do that chorus stuff. It's probably the easiest way to use three little girls that are all sisters in a stage play. Or stage play... Presented as a movie, documentary, TV? Something. Whatever this was. Whatever this was. <laughs> um, so the the big thing, there's like a scene at the end where everyone is chanting, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Yes. And the there's a like haunting ballad by Jarvis Cocker over the credits. Which, so that scene when they're saying... Uh, the you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep thing really hit me like the end of School Days. The yeah. Spike Lee movie. When everyone in the campus, the movie ends with everyone on campus just yelling, wake up at the camera. Yeah. And that was in 1988. Um, so my first reaction was, it's about woke. And I, it feels like there had to be some of that there. Like, I feel like Wes is too much of a student to not know that he's directly referencing Spike Lee there. Yeah. But for some reason it felt uneasy to me, like referencing wokeness in this movie, and I hesitate to even bring this up because of uh, America. <laughs> Gestures vaguely at everything. <laughs> um, so my first read of that was like critiquing America for kind of falling asleep on racial justice after the 60s. Yeah. That's, I can see that. That's where I, it first hit me. But then the ballad that you're talking about over the credits. That's why we weren't talking over the credits. I was listening to the lyrics. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it's less political than that. It's more like you can't move on if you don't start moving on. Yeah, it's you can't if you... Like you can't wake up from this nightmare if you don't fall asleep and just let it happen. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's a lot of like... If you stay, you have to do something, you have to take a step, and sometimes that step is letting go, Mm -hmm. and you can't, you have to be willing to let go. Earlier in the movie, sleep was defined as a changing process, too. Yes. So, the scene where that happens, where they start chanting that, um, is an acting class where the writer of this play is trying to figure out how a scene would go if a whole town fell asleep. Yeah. And so he has actors improvise. And he says, or the acting coach, I think it's Willem Dafoe. It is. Um, explains, like, when you fall asleep, what are you doing? Something's happening. You're having a dream. You're visiting an old relative. You're climbing a building. You're being, you are inert but active. When you wake up, do you wake up hungover? Do you wake up confused? Like... Sleep is a process of change. It's a necessary process, but it needs... So going back to your grief thing... Yeah. It's like, you need to sleep. You need to let the change process happen. You can't be so scared of the change that you're not letting it begin. 
Yes. And it's also fascinating because immediately after it goes to black with that um, them a, a room full of like 35 people chanting, you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep, you smash cut to Augie Steenbeck waking up alone. Yes. Everyone else has left the town. It's like it never happened. Mm-hmm. You only have the tiniest little indications that it was even there. I didn't catch that because in between it going to black, epilogue popped up. Yes. And I and internally I'm saying, thank God the movie didn't end like that because I don't know how I'd feel. It needed the yeah. epilogue. Yeah. It definitely needed it. Because it's, it's that thing where it's like, you went through an experience and he literally has photographic evidence of the experience that he went through. <laughs> But Doesn't he like mail the negatives before the quarantine goes into does. effect so they can't they can't prosecute him? He but the does. but the Chinese child or Korean child, um <laughs> because he like hacked the telephone they line. <laughs> Going to jail for treason. Oh. It's so good. And he's like twelve. Oh, love it. <laughs> Fucking great. I love it. Those characters reminded me of the the science geeks in Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, Just yeah. a group of kids. Slash the, um, oh, what are they called? Malcolm's class and Malcolm in the Middle in the first couple seasons. Oh, yes. The Crowboyans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it reminded me of them. Oh, I love it. Oh, such a good movie. I feel like I need to watch it again just to marinate on some things, soak in some things. I want to watch it again with an eye to what he's doing with color. Because mm. he's playing with color again. And I feel like there's, um... There's an indicate like each character has its own color code. I think. I feel like each group or family or faction in pro wrestling terms does. <laughs> yeah, like de- like we were talking about um, Scarlett Johansson and Jason Schwartzman when they're in their little bungalows. Um, they each there's always one red item in the frame mm-hmm. in his. In Jason Schwartzman's, it's always the red light that he uses for his photographs. Mm-hmm. For the for his darkroom. Yes, for his darkroom. And then for um, Scarlett Johansson, it changes. Sometimes it's her bathrobe. Sometimes it's her lipstick. And I think at, some, at one point, it is her pill bottle. The fake pill bottle. <laughs> so, you, you saying the bathrobe reminded me. He takes a picture of her in that bathrobe with that pose? Yes. Um, the next day she goes, how did it come out? And he hangs a picture of the alien and then he hangs a picture of her in the bathroom. Did you notice that the alien and her are making the same pose, but mirrored and they're on either side of his head? No. The alien's like on his, like, I guess it was right side holding the asteroid and posing for the camera. Fucking hilarious joke. So funny. And then she like, she's got her arms to the left side holding her briefcase or she's got her arms up on the um, screen or something. She's reaching down towards a cooler. Yeah. But it's, they're like mirrors of each other. And... I don't know if there's a point to that. I just thought it was neat. It's Wes Anderson. There's got to be a point. Or or he did it and said, I can't wait to listen to some dork-ass podcasters try and figure out what I'm trying to say here. (laughs) Just giggling in his little cabin in Vermont or wherever the fuck Wes Anderson lives. Um, I'm trying to think, like... It was fun to see Sophia Lillis um, having just been exposed to her in fucking the D&D movie. Um, Who else? Steve Carell was such a joy. Jeffrey Wright as the general was oh, hilarious. Oh my god, his speech. So, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, alright, I should probably do my speech now. Uh, you will receive an audio copy of it 
uh, as a parting gift. Anyway, here we go. And then, like, the lights change, and he goes into this well-rehearsed, like, chapter one, a young boy. Like, <laughs> and then he steps forward, and, like, a cadet, like, lifts a microphone, <laughs> he goes into another microphone, and, like, he's it's so rehearsed and it's so fucking well done like he has so much charisma in that scene and it's all a oneer. there's no edits in that it's one take because it's a play and of course you'd have to do it in one take duh um also love the second microphone comes back with um Tilda Swinton Swinton, and then she's running past it like her voice gets louder and then quieter (laughs) (laughs) yes oh god so you also thought that she was trying to fuck Woodrow? That was Swinton. a really uncomfortable scene for no reason. That was weird. That was weird. It was really weird. It was weird. Is it just because of who Tilda Swinton is? or I, can't. <laughs> I feel like she... What she was going for was admiration. Yeah. It's like you have rekindled my love for astronomy. But but there is something with, with Wes and that dynamic... Because that dynamic's in Rushmore, oh. and that dynamic's in uh, French Dispatch with the older woman and the younger intellectual. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he loves that dynamic. It's, oh, I don't like that. Yeah, that's... It's gross. I, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, and he just had a really big crush on his English teacher in high school. <laughs> he seems like the kind of guy who would have had a really, really big crush. Does Wes Anderson <laughs> seem like the kind of person... Who may have had an issue with romantic feelings for an authority figure. I'm just putting that out there. This is all hypothetical. I'm just saying. For legal purposes, none of this is... None of these are accusations. Well, if anything, we wouldn't be accusing him. We'd be accusing the people in his life. Like the Wilsons? Oh, um, trying to think if there's anything else I want to, I want to bring up. I'm sure I'll think of something when we're done recording, but I live with you. I can just shout my thoughts into you whenever I feel. It's true. (laughs) This movie feels like he's shouting his thoughts at us. They're still rattling around and it's going to take some time to, to sort out all of my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I guess that's our little bonus episode. Pod. We'll try to do these whenever we go out and see something together, I guess. Yeah. If it's noteworthy. Yeah. If it's not, then fucking whatever, but, eh, surprise. A little free episode for you. Whee! All of our episodes are free. And I'm not doing any editing, so sing us out, Cody! End of the pod!